Good morning to you again. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and take that and open with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're going to finish Luke chapter 19 today with verses 28 to 48. So Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And I hope you'll follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 28. When Jesus had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of His disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask now for illumination from the Holy Spirit that we would be able to both understand and believe and obey what it is that you have revealed in your word. Father, we confess that your word is inspired and without error, that it gives us all that we need for life and godliness. So we pray for the humility necessary to submit ourselves to it. And we pray most of all, Father, for grace. Grace that builds us up. Grace that opens the eyes of the lost. And grace that brings glory to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. 
That was how Luke described things back in chapter 9 as Jesus began His Jerusalem journey. And today's passage in chapter 19 brings that journey to an end. At long last, Jesus reaches Jerusalem. In the ancient world, you could say that all roads lead to Rome, but in Luke's Gospel, all roads lead to this point, to Jerusalem and the culmination of God's plan for His Son. Here we find both the conclusion to Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of His passion. The miracles are now complete, save one, the resurrection of the Son of God. At long last, Jesus reaches Jerusalem. At first glance, we find this passage familiar, don't we? Luke narrates what is traditionally called the triumphal entry. And this is followed up by one of Jesus' most well-known acts, the cleansing of the temple. All of this is the prelude to the Passion, which again reminds us that we are familiar with this text. This is the part of the story that we know the best. But friends, that conclusion, while understandable, may overlook the uniqueness of Luke's presentation of these familiar events. Both Matthew and Mark describe Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in ways that are similar to Luke, but only Luke follows that up with Jesus' lament for the city. Only Luke puts the triumphal entry and the lament back to back. Only Luke connects those. And that gets to the significance of Luke's presentation. For Luke, this is as much a tearful entry as it is a triumphal one. There is as much judgment in this entry as there is joy. There is as much reason to be sobered as there is reason to celebrate. It's true that these verses are climactic. They bridge Jesus' earthly ministry and His passion. It's true they're climactic. But that's precisely what Luke is setting up. The cross, the cross, Calvary, is all that's left for Jesus. Jerusalem, the city of the King, will be the site of Israel's greatest tragedy, the rejection of the Son of God. So yes, it's the triumphal entry that we all know, but it's also a tearful one too. At long last, Jesus reaches Jerusalem, which means only the cross is left. How then should we approach this familiar but striking passage? What should be our focus as we study these verses? Well, our focus ought to remain where it has been for the entirety of the 72 sermons that we've had in Luke. Our focus should be on Jesus. What do these somewhat familiar scenes reveal about Jesus' identity and His work? What insight do these verses give us regarding who Jesus is and what He's come to do? That should be our focus. And when we think about those questions this morning we see that there are three pictures of Jesus in this text that both encourage us and also challenge us to respond to Him. Specifically, these three pictures focus on Jesus as the King, Jesus as the Prophet, and Jesus as the Word. So, let's think about this familiar text from the perspective of those three pictures of Jesus. and Let's think about each one a little bit more closely from these verses. The first picture is the longest from verses 28 to 40. Jesus is the true and greater King who fulfills God's Word. 
That's picture number one. Jesus is the true and greater King who fulfills God's Word. Jerusalem, as you know, was the capital city of Israel. This was the city of the king, the place where David's sons reigned over the people of God. And while the Romans are now in charge in Jesus' day, Jerusalem has not lost any of its royal overtones. It remains the city of the king. And as Jesus approaches the city, those royal overtones begin to focus more and more on Him. The events of His entry into the city are all rich in portraying that Jesus is the King. It starts even with the preparations for the entry, which reveal Jesus' royal authority. Note how specific Jesus is in the instructions He gives. Verse 29, when He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of His disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Friends, it should get your attention that Jesus has not left anything to chance. With remarkable specificity, He tells the disciples where to go and what they will find. He even tells them what to say. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying the colt? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So from the location to the conversation, Jesus is in control. And that control is confirmed in verse 32. So those who were sent away went and found it just as Jesus had told them. How does this happen, we ask? Is it because Jesus possesses divine foreknowledge and therefore He can see what is and what will be? Or is it because Jesus has prepared ahead of time, anticipating and planning for what needs to happen? Well, those options are not mutually exclusive, to be honest. But either way, the point is the same. Jesus is in control. The preparations are under His authority. As the procession approaches the king's city, Jesus is the one running the show. Everything is happening according to His Word. He's in charge. Before we move on any further, friends, we ought to note briefly what this, remain, what this means for the remainder of Jesus' life. Certainly, Jerusalem will be the site of Jesus' betrayal and His arrest and His crucifixion. But before any of those things happen, what does Luke establish? What does Luke remind us of? The authority of Jesus. The power of Jesus. As He approaches Jerusalem, things are not spiraling out of control. Rather, they're under His control. Even the little details, where to go, what to find, what to say... They all are underneath Jesus' authority. And therefore, everything that follows, including the betrayal and the arrest and the crucifixion, everything that follows is also under Jesus' control. Even in death, Jesus is the King. His approach continues to the city and so does the theme of kingship. Along with authority, the procession pictures Jesus' royal fulfillment. Look at verse 35. Jesus is mounted on the colt like a king. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. A royal carpet is then laid. Verse 36, as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, what, what is happening 
here. It all seems very deliberate. So what's going on? Well, this is the enactment, the fulfillment actually, of an Old Testament promise. In Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet predicted that the Messianic king would one day ride into Jerusalem mounted on a colt, the foal of a, of a donkey. And that day would signal that salvation had come. On that day, Zechariah prophesied, the Lord their God will save them, the flock of His people. So, there's a self-conscious fulfillment at work in Luke 19. Jesus didn't pick a colt by accident. The approach was not planned coincidentally. This is fulfillment. This is the embodiment of God's Word coming to pass. The King approaches, and on the basis of Scripture, that King is Jesus. But if that weren't enough, the fulfillment continues as the crowd of Jesus' disciples begins to celebrate. Their celebration is an expression of worship. Listen again, verse 37. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Friends, this is the right response to Jesus' ministry. The only thing to do at this moment is to praise God. Sure, there's a lot that the disciples don't understand still, but please don't miss what they do understand. Jesus is the King. God's Word is being fulfilled. And this becomes all the more clear as the disciples begin to sing in verse 38. Notice the content of their song, verse 38. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now you should catch here the echo of the angels' song in Luke chapter 2. What did the angels sing to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those whom God is pleased. What did the disciples sing now in chapter 19? They sing the same thing. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Heaven's song finds its fulfillment in earthly praise. What's the point? The promised Savior, the King, has come. And that's why the disciples are, are singing this blessing. Look again at verse 38. You probably have a little footnote in your Bible or a cross-reference that verse 38 tells you is a citation of Psalm 118. Verse 38 is citing... Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a pilgrim song that was sung as Israelites would make their way up to Jerusalem for the great feasts of the Lord every year. Within the Psalter, Psalm 118 anticipates one last pilgrimage where the Messianic King will lead all of God's people up to the greater Jerusalem into the presence of God. And so, as the disciples are singing here, as they're singing Psalm 118, they are picturing what ought to occur as Jesus enters Jerusalem. We ought to praise God for the King is arriving. We ought to praise God for His Word is coming to pass. We ought to praise God because salvation is riding in to the city of the King. It's the right response, the scriptural response, praise, worship. Because God's King is bringing God's Word to fulfillment 
for the salvation of God's people. And in that sense, friends, the disciples, the disciples' song is testimony to the watching world. Where is true peace found? In this man Jesus, who is the King. Where is God's glory displayed? In this man Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. How is the God of glory reconciling people to Himself so that we have peace with God through this man, Jesus? You see, it's more than exuberance from the disciples. It's proclamation. It's testimony. And it's all focusing our attention where it ought to be on Jesus, the One who comes with so much royal fulfillment. The approach continues. He hasn't even made it to the city yet. The approach continues. And there's one more indication that Jesus is King. Royal authority, royal fulfillment, finally, royal reception. Jesus receives a royal reception. Actually, the reception is frosty at first. The Pharisees, no surprise, object to what is happening. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, this actually confirms that our interpretation is correct. Why are the Pharisees objecting? Because they understand quite clearly what the disciples are claiming. They understand quite clearly what Jesus is presenting Himself to be. They see all of these overtones of royalty and they're bothered because they understand what Jesus is doing. Perhaps they're afraid that the Romans will misunderstand and respond with a crackdown. Or, as is more likely, the Pharisees are probably upset because they view Jesus as a threat to them. If Jesus is the King, then that means that they are not. They're not in charge. And so the Pharisees object. Make them stop. They tell Jesus, this is blasphemous. Make them stop. Jesus declines. Look at verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation understands better than the Pharisees. You can stop the disciples, but you can't stop God's purposes. You can silence Jesus' followers, but you can't silence Jesus' creation. That's the point. Creation responds to Jesus because creation belongs to Jesus. His realm is greater than Jerusalem, in other words. This isn't just the King of Israel. This is the King of creation. The rocks will cry because He owns them and He made them and they recognize Him for who He is. Even if people won't receive Jesus as King, then the cold, lifeless stones would cry out because nothing will stop what God is doing in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's not allow creation to do the job that we were created to do. That's the exhortation here. Let's not allow creation to do the job that we were created to do. It's unmistakably clear from God's Word that Jesus is King. I've deliberately unfolded that truth in some detail for the last several minutes because I want you to see how unmistakably and remarkably clear it is from the Bible. Jesus is the King of all the earth. And that means worship, praise, 
exaltation is the highest act of human life. Don't let creation do what you were created to do. This is the reason we exist. To testify to the truth that Jesus is King. And then to devote every aspect of our lives to the praise and exaltation of His name. Listen, it's a sad commentary on our churches that we so often reduce worship to singing songs. It's equally sad that we so regularly denigrate praise as some heavenly activity that has little bearing on the real world. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. We exist to do precisely what we see in this scene. If you're asking the big questions of life, what is meaning? What's my purpose? What am I made to do? Here's your answer from the disciples. Don't let rocks do what you were created to do. Praise Christ. With every breath and every aspect of your life, we exist to do precisely what this scene is telling us we ought to do to testify to who Jesus is and then to use our lives to praise His name. So are you telling me, Pastor, that I should quit my job and just go down to the street corner and just preach the Gospel every day until God comes back? Well, no, not necessarily. But I am telling you that you ought to go to work each day and work heartily as unto the Lord, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, because in doing so, you're giving praise and testimony to Jesus. It's a sad commentary on our churches that we so regularly reduce worship to just the singing of songs. It's not less than that, but friends, it's much, much more. And it's the reason that we exist. Nothing could be more central. Nothing is more relevant to the world, even. Nothing God's Word is telling us is more urgent than this. In that sense, the rocks in verse 40 are one of the more powerful exhortations in all of the book. Don't let creation do what you were created to do. Jesus is going to be praised regardless of what you or I do. His identity is so clear. His glory is so great. Creation itself will sing if we won't but let's not get to that point. Let's not get to that point. We've seen the truth. I hope that Jesus is King and He fulfills God's Word. The Scriptures are abundantly clear. And that means our response is just this, to testify and to praise with every aspect of our lives. Of course, of course the joy of Jesus' arrival is tinged by the criticism of the Pharisees in verse 39. Jerusalem is the king's city, but this king is destined to get his crown through the cross. And that opposition leads us into the second picture of Christ in this text. From verses 41 to 44, picture number two, Jesus is the true and greater prophet who announces God's judgment. Jesus is the true and greater prophet who announces God's judgment. When you read through the Old Testament, which I hope that you do, one consistent evidence of God's grace is how often He warned His people that judgment was coming. It's a consistent evidence of God's grace. Time and time again, God would send His prophets, and every time those prophets would warn the people and call them back to God's covenant. That's that's really the entire history of Israel. From Moses in the wilderness 
warning the people not to forsake the Lord, all the way through to Malachi, who prophesies after the exile. That's the history of Israel. God warning His people through His prophets. Here in Luke 19, specifically in these verses 41 to 44, Jesus stands in that prophetic line. He warns the people of God. Now, Jesus is certainly more than a prophet. We just said that He's the Messiah. He's, he's the King. But still, Jesus does fulfill a prophetic role. In fact, Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses that was promised in Deuteronomy 18. So with climactic authority, Jesus warns the people that judgment is coming. Notice all of the prophet-like pieces of Jesus' message to Jerusalem. Notice them with me. To begin with, Jesus, just like Jeremiah, laments Israel's hardness of heart. Look at verse 41. When he drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You may remember last week that we talked about Jesus crushing his enemies on the last day. Do you remember that? It was from the end of the parable where the king in the parable said, bring my enemies here and slaughter them before me. Jesus will crush his enemies. But at the same time, friends, don't allow that biblical truth to distort the character of Christ. While Jesus brings judgment, he still weeps over Jerusalem's hardness of heart. He laments their spiritual state. Why is he weeping? Because by and large, the people have rejected the things that make for peace. They've rejected the good news of the kingdom. They've rejected the salvation that King Jesus has come to accomplish. And this is a reason for lament, said Jesus. He weeps for the city. At the same time, this is important, at the same time, this does not mean that God's purposes are being thwarted. Notice that last line in verse 42. Now these things are hidden from your eyes. Hidden by whom? Hidden by whom? Well, by the sovereign God. God hides it from them. Which means that even Israel's rejection is under God's control. Even Jerusalem's hardness of heart is ultimately serving the purposes of God. So God, in his, God is in control, there's no doubt about it, but this is still a, a moment for lament, according to Jesus. This is, this is still a moment to weep. But that lament is quickly followed by a prediction. Like nearly every Old Testament prophet, Jesus announces the judgment of God. Listen again to verse 43, and, and, and notice how specific this vision of judgment is. For the days will come upon you, Jesus says, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Friends, that's a prediction of Jerusalem's destruction that happens in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Roman general Titus. And if you read the history of that moment, you will find that Jesus' prediction is spot on. 
I mean, it, it's, it's very much paralleled. The Romans tore Jerusalem to the ground so that there was not one stone left upon another, the histories say. Why does this happen? Jesus gives us the reason. Look at the last line of verse 43. Because, there's the reason, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you remember back in chapter 12 when Jesus said that the crowds knew how to interpret the weather, but they couldn't understand the present time? Do you remember that? You can understand the weather, but you can't understand what time you're living in. That's similar to the point that Jesus is making here. By and large, the people of Jerusalem miss what God is doing. They are willfully blind to the work of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. They have the Old Testament Scriptures, so they've heard all of those promises that we've already talked about, Zechariah 9, Psalm 118. They've got the Bible. They know, they, they've heard the promises about the Messiah. They've, they've heard Jesus teach. They've witnessed His miracles. They've seen Him in the flesh, and yet they don't believe. They won't believe. And that's why Jesus says the judgment of God is coming upon them. The time of visitation is clearly at hand. God is here! And they don't see it. They won't see it. They refuse to believe. Israel's heart is hard. And so, Jesus says, God's judgment will come upon them. He, the city will be torn apart. Friends, one thing to remember about the Old Testament prophets is that they were living reminders of Israel's accountability to God. Every prophet was an embodiment of essentially the same message. You belong to God, His Word demands your allegiance, and therefore today is the day that you ought to respond to Him. Jesus, here in Luke 19, is making the same point, but in a much greater way. Jesus is not simply a prophet. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God in human flesh. So when He speaks God's Word to God's people, the urgency of response is even greater. If Israel should have listened to Isaiah, then how much more should they listen to Jesus? That's the escalation here. That's part of why Jesus is weeping in verse 41. He knows, He knows that this is the culmination and therefore, Israel's accountability before God is so great. Why? Because the one they are despising is not simply a prophet. He's the King. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. What about us? What about us? Time has marched on. Culture has changed. We're not citizens of Jerusalem. But our accountability before God is also great. Probably greater than what we recognize. And so Jesus' warning to Jerusalem is actually saying something to you and me. Jesus' lament over Jerusalem is a warning to you and to me. To everyone, actually, in our day who hears the Word of God. Will you respond to God and to His Word? Or will you, like Jerusalem, miss the day of your visitation? Will you refuse willful in your blindness to the truth that God has so plainly revealed? Friends, the, the Scriptures are incredibly clear. 
The one way to respond to God is to repent of your sin and to entrust your life to Christ. The response is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He is the King who laid down His life for the salvation of His people. So if you're not a Christian today, and surely in a room even of this size, there are some here who don't know the Lord. If you're not a Christian today, then this is where the Word of God, written some 2,000 years ago, intersects with your life at this moment right now. Don't think that the time and the culture gap between you and Luke 19 makes any difference to your life. It doesn't. It doesn't make any difference. The time to respond is now. For there is a day coming, there is a di- listen to me, there's a day coming when there's no more response able for you to make. That's the tragedy of Jesus' triumphal entry. Jerusalem misses it and the door closes. So don't think that the gap between Luke 19 and you, don't think that that gap of time or that gap of culture makes any difference to your accountability before God. It doesn't. The same urgency that Jesus has here as He laments for the city is the same urgency that the Word of God has to you if you don't know the Lord. The time to respond is is today. And so the Bible, not me, I'm just a dude. Don't, don't Don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it, friends. The time to respond is now. Turn from your sin. Confess that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life and shed His blood to pay for all of those sins. The ones that make you wake up in the middle of the night and go, man, I'm... I have no hope before God. Believe that His blood covers even those sins. The time to respond in that way to God is not tomorrow or the next day or next year because you may not get them, friend. The time to respond is today. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that He saves those who entrust themselves to Him. Please do not make the foolish mistake of thinking that the gap between Luke 19 and you makes any difference in your standing before God. It doesn't. Today, respond to the Lord. Jesus is the true and greater prophet. He announces the judgment of God. And that means every single one of us is accountable to Him today. The final picture of Christ in this passage comes in the temple of all places. Verses 45 to 48. Picture number three. Jesus is the true and final Word who reveals God's will. Jesus is the true and final Word who reveals God's will. Friends, it's significant that the first thing Jesus does after announcing God's judgment and arriving in Jerusalem, the first thing he does is to head for the temple. If Jerusalem is hard-hearted, then the temple is ground zero for that problem. And so, with righteous authority, Jesus cleanses the temple. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold Who are these people that Jesus is driving out? 
essentially they're merchants who profit off of the worshipers. They may have been selling the sacrificial animals at a marked up price, or they may have been exchanging people's currency at insane rates in order to make a profit. Whatever the specific practice, it's clear that these sellers are not honoring the purpose of the temple, which means they're not honoring God. They're more concerned with margins and, mar and market share than they are with praise and prayer. And so Jesus drives them out. In doing so, Jesus clarifies what the problem is at the temple. Look again, verse 46, where Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is putting two Old Testament passages together at the same time. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Isaiah's point in chapter 56 was simple enough. The temple was supposed to be about worship. Not just for Israel, but also for the nations. But the Jeremiah reference is the key. That phrase, den of robbers. You see it there in the last line? You have made it a den of robbers. That comes from what is called Jeremiah's temple sermon. It's in chapter 7. It's a fiery sermon from the prophet Jeremiah where he denounces the nation's religious life, particularly at the temple. He denounces their life as being faithless, even though they are still coming to the temple and offering sacrifices to God. And so Jeremiah's message was, you're a fool if you think that you can rob someone on the way to the temple and then by offering a sacrifice be okay with God. You're a fool if you think you can do that. You're a fool if you think your heart can be far from God and yet you can come here and go through the motions and say the prayers and burn the incense and offer the lamb and you're going to be okay. You're a fool. That's what Jeremiah said in chapter 7. The will of God was never about going through the motions while neglecting the reality of your heart. You can't rob someone on the way to the temple and then think a little prayer is going to make it better. That's not God's will for the life of His people. So, back to chapter 19 with Jesus. Whenever Jesus cites the Old Testament, you don't just need the verse. You need to go to the Old Testament passage and look at the big picture of what's happening because He's often bringing that whole picture with Him into the moment. So, by citing this passage from Jeremiah at this moment in this place, Jesus is doing more than driving out some greedy businessmen. He is saying that the entire nation is corrupt. The entire nation is spiritually dead. And what they need is wholesale repentance and change. And nowhere is that clearer than, than in the temple. The very place where God's presence was supposed to dwell has become the place where God is most flagrantly dishonored. So that leaves this massive question, if you're reading this passage, what's to be done now? If the whole nation is corrupt, what's to be done? Where do things go from here? Well, this is my favorite part in the text. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 47. It's a transitional verse, but that one short little sentence at the beginning is so key. Verse 47. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. 
Now, if you've been at Midtown for any length of time, you know I love to ask questions in order to study the Bible. I like questions. So here's a simple question. Who takes the place of the money sellers in the temple? Jesus does. He drives them out and He puts Himself in their place. What replaces their false worship? Jesus' teaching does. Jesus' Word does. Do you see the connection, friends? The only hope for a bankrupt, spiritually dead people is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope. That's why Jesus drives the people out so that He can take center stage Himself at the epicenter of the nation's religious life. Jesus is saying in the cleansing of the temple, the only way to be reconciled to God is through Me and through My Word. If spiritual life is going to blossom in this barren place of a temple, it will only come through Jesus. That's what He's saying. Of course, the religious leaders don't see things this way. They hate Jesus. And in verse 47, they conclude that opposing Him is not enough. We probably should try to kill Him, they decide. For now, they can't. Jesus still has some popular support that makes it unwise for the religious leaders to touch Him, verse 48, but that popular support doesn't last long. The hostility wins, and Jesus is going to suffer for the salvation of His people. But, but before that suffering arrives, before the suffering gets here, this short scene in the temple anticipates the way to spiritual life and peace with God. It comes through Jesus and His Word. He drives out the merchants and puts Himself in their place. He rebukes their false worship and He puts His Word in its place. Jesus cleanses the temple and then very clearly, very purposefully, He puts Himself on center stage. Only God could make such a claim and not be a blasphemer. And that's who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's the Word of God made flesh, sent for the salvation of sinners. He drives them out so that He is in the middle. And that's where we're going to end today, brothers and sisters. That to know the will of God To know the will of God, we don't need to go on some mystical quest hoping for some sign in the sky. To find a deeper spiritual life, you don't need to look within in order to tap into your own innate spirituality. Those things are lies, friends, that will mislead you. To know the will of God, we need very simply to know Jesus and His Word. The will of God is revealed right here in Jesus Christ and in His Word that He has given to His church. He drives the merchants out so that He is in center stage. In that sense, the scene in the temple pictures the remedy that so many believers, including ourselves perhaps, and so many churches need in our day. We need to return to Christ and to His Word with simplicity and with humility. We need to refocus our Christian lives on the Word of God made flesh who gives us the Word of God written. We need to submit ourselves anew to the life of Jesus' church where His Word has authority and rules over us for our good. 
It's the church, friends, that functions like an embassy of King Jesus. It's the Word of God that gives life and leads us to fruitfulness and knowing the will of God. The cleansing of the temple is in some way a picture of what the church needs down through all of the ages. We need Christ and His Word to be on center stage. We need to shut our ears off to people who just care about margins and market share, and we need to open our near ears up to the simplicity of all that we need for life and godliness is found right here in God's Word. We need Christ and His Word to be on center stage. So come what may, friends. Come what may. With all the grace-driven fortitude that we can muster, let's say this is where we're going to stand and not go anywhere else. So again, I'm going to close with the question that I hope makes this personal. How about you? Look, I've got a lot that I could say right now about what this means for the church and America and evangelicalism. I'm not sure that that would be helpful to you, so I'm not going to say it. Instead, I'm just going to ask, what about you? How about you? Is your Christian life centered on Christ and on His Word? Is Scripture the heartbeat of your discipleship and desire to know God? Is the church, is the church central to your approach to the faith? It ought to be, friends. There's no other word from God than this one. And there's no other place where God's Word reigns with authority than in His church, at least now, on this side of the second coming. And that means there's no other way to be in the will of God than to be centered each and every day on what God has spoken in Christ. Jesus is the true and final Word who reveals the will of God. He drives the merchants out so that He will be center stage. Where is it that you need to do something similar. Push something else out and put the Scriptures central stage. Where is that? And how do you plan to start? Let's pray. Father, help us. We want to not just understand Your Word. That's key. That's the starting point. That's square one. we got to understand it. But we pray, Father, that we would also believe it and then obey it with our lives. And so we see very clearly, Lord, the centrality of Jesus Christ. Give us humility to ask where we ought to do the same. To put Christ and His Word central again to how we live each and every day. Help us, Father, to be humble enough to admit that we need Jesus' prophetic work of cleansing the temple and declaring Himself as authoritative. We need that in our lives each and every day. Lord, give us that kind of humble approach to the Christian life. We pray, Father, that you would please bear fruit according to your word and according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.